Good morning. It is good to be back with you. Uh, we were, our family was gone for um, most of a couple of weeks, and it was uh, nice to go and, and uh, visit and uh, drop the girls off at school, and it's wonderful to be back, and it's great to be in the pulpit and be with you all. So thanks for joining me today. If you would open your Bibles, please, to Genesis. Yes, I said Genesis. We're going to return there. Uh, we uh, took a hiatus from Genesis uh, back in May, and this is our first uh, journey back into this great uh, book of beginnings. We find ourselves in Genesis chapter 25, and I'm going to read for us just verses 27 through the end of that chapter. This is God's Word. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright. To Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Let's pray. Father, we pause before you together this morning with your word open before us because it is your very word. We come to you in prayer together as a congregation because you are our God. We recognize that our troubles are too much for us. Our struggles, the things that we face, the temptations in our lives, the, the things in our circumstances that we come up against are too great for us, but they are not too great for you. And so we come to you in prayer. We recognize that as we watch this world around us, as we try to read circumstances and understand our lives, and, and even at times our own motives, our own hearts, we recognize that that is too great a task for us. We are not wise enough. We don't know enough. We don't see clearly enough. And so we come to your word, which you have spoken to us, and we ask this morning, Father, that you would take your word open before us, that you would do your work in our hearts by your Spirit, even in these next few minutes. So we ask, Father, that you would minister to us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's good to be back in the book of Genesis, and it's good to be 
back into this storyline of these characters, uh, these um, sometimes heroes of the faith, oftentimes usually not so heroic in the faith, but we come to our story today, and, and really it's, it's uh, uh, sad in a way, it's tragic in a way when we come to this passage. And I know sometimes when we read the Bible, uh, you're reading through it on your own or as a family or uh, you're listening to it or whatever you're doing, that, that sometimes we encounter issues, uh, concepts in the Bible that are, that are huge, that are too big for us. Maybe they're too complex for us really to get our minds around, and there are probably more of those than we would care to admit when we read the Bible. We struggle to really comprehend, struggle really to, to wrap our minds around some of these great truths in Scripture like eternity. Simple word, go ahead and get your mind wrapped around that one, I dare you. Or infinity. Or even creation. That's a difficult concept in itself. Or if we were to think about God's character and look at His holiness, we struggle really. We kind of come at that from different angles. We struggle to wrap our minds around that. But the Bible has a way in some, uh, in some cases and sometimes and with many of these topics of presenting it in such a way that we can really get a handle on that truth. And usually it's in the form of an episode in the lives of God's people, and that is the case today. We're going to run into two very difficult concepts that are laid out for us in uh, the story of these two brothers and their interaction with one another. This, this account of, of God's dealing in these circumstances is really going to help us wrestle through a couple of very challenging questions that we have in our lives that we run up against. And one is a huge one. How do God's sovereign choices relate to the choices of man? That's a difficult concept, and we're going to run into that today. And a second one, which on one hand, it doesn't seem like it's all that difficult, but it's extremely practical, and you've asked yourself this question, why is sin so tempting? Why is sin so tempting? How can it be that we who ought to know better can fall for the lies of the enemy? Well, those are two topics that we're going to brush up against today in our passage. And so in order to get started through this, what we're going to do is work our way through this account, and then we're going to draw some conclusions and, uh, and look at some implications that come out of this passage. But in order for us to really understand today's passage, we need to go back to chapter 25 and verse 23, just a couple of verses earlier, where we read about a future promised So here we have this situation where Rebekah has conceived. In verse 22, the children struggled together within her, and she asks the question, if it's thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. So she's, she's finally conceived in answer to prayer. This is a wonderful thing, and yet in this pregnancy that she's got, the, the children are struggling together, and she's having a great deal of difficulty in this pregnancy. And so she asks, what is happening? Why is this happening? In verse 23, the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. 
So in order to understand today's passage and the events that go on in the interaction between Jacob and his brother, we really need to understand and go back and, and remember this prophecy that was given to their mom while she was still pregnant. They hadn't even been born yet, and this prophecy is made. The reason for the prophecy, the immediate uh, point of the prophecy was to explain to their mom why it is that these two children within her were struggling to such a degree. And it's interesting that the explanation starts with two nations are in your womb. If you had two nations in your womb, you would expect some struggling. You would expect a difficult pregnancy, and that's really uh, what's going on here is these two boys, these two twins represent two nations. They will become two nations, and not only two nations. There are nations in the world that get along very well, that don't struggle against one another. These are not those two nations. These two nations are two that, that are against one another. They are opposed to one another. There is struggle between them. There is conflict between them, and it's represented right there in those twin boys. Infants in their mother, mother's womb struggling against one another already. And we're going to see that struggling between two little babies is going to turn into struggling between two grown men is going to turn into struggling between two nations. And that's what this prophecy says, is that uh, the reason there's such trouble in this, in this pregnancy is because of what it represents, because of who's present. What's fascinating about this prophecy, not only do we have two nations wrestling with one another, what's fascinating about this prophecy and what catches our minds and what really sets the tone for later on is that contrary to nature and contrary to custom, the older is going to become the servant of the younger. When the statement is made, there'll be one stronger and one weaker, well, yeah, that's typical, not a big deal, right? What is shocking is when the statement is made that the older shall serve the younger. That's, that's not the way it's supposed to be, particularly in this culture. I mean, in our day and age, the, the, the younger doesn't serve the older in, in, in any normal sense. But in this culture, that was very much the case. The, the, the firstborn, the one who led the way, was the one who, who would lead the family. And the rest, of, the rest of the family, the rest of the siblings would come along and would essentially be servants of that firstborn, but not in this case. The prophecy catches our minds because we have the statement here that the older, we expect to be the stronger, we expect to be the leader, we expect to be the one who will become the patriarch of the family, but the older will become a servant to the younger. And so that passage catches our mind, and we're going to see how it's going to play out from that future that is promised there in verse 23. We're going to see in our passage that we're looking at today, the future in the balance. And so we turn to our passage here, verse 27. So the boys were born. They're named Esau and Jacob. And when they grew up, verse 27, we have a difference between the two brothers. We have the fact that Esau, the firstborn, is a skillful hunter. He's a man of the field. He's an outdoorsman. He likes to hunt. He likes to be out there. And 
in contrast to him, in contrast to this brother who was, who was born hairy and he's, he's an outdoorsman and he's, he's, he's kind of, um, you know, lives out there, likes to hunt, he's a skillful hunter, he's all about being out there. In contrast to him, his younger brother is a quiet man living among the tents. Right? He stays home close to mom. And you see that play out in the story. But the idea of him being a, a quiet man is really the concept of, of being refined. That he's, um, he's, a, he's, a, he's a, a polished man who likes the comforts of home. He likes to take care of things from his tent and not go out and sleep rough under a bush somewhere. He likes to take care of the flocks and the herds that are there and contained and not go out hunting for game over hill and dale. And so we see automatically we have a, a great difference between these two men, between Esau, the older, and Jacob, the younger. But it gets worse. Verse 28, Isaac, dad, loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. So you see dysfunction in the family already. By the way, every family has some degree of dysfunction. But here, the author wants us to see it right off the bat. These two brothers are very different. And one parent loved one, and the other parent loved the other. I wonder if there's going to be a problem. (laughs) I wonder if there's going to come conflict out of this. You could look at your own family. You could look at uh, people around you and, and observe that, oh, yes, there's going to be difficulty. And that indeed is the case Uh, right here with these two, that you've got Esau, who's the man of the field. He likes to go and hunt and, very importantly, bring back that game. And Dad sure likes it. He loves deer sausage. He loves elk steaks, whatever. He likes to eat what his son brings home, right? He's he's motivated. He's kind of governed by his belly and, uh, and, and what he likes to eat. We don't know a whole lot about Isaac, but here is one of the curious things that we know about him is that his preference for his older son is because of this food, because he likes the game. And then on the other hand, you've got mom. You've got Rebecca, and she, she likes the baby. She dotes on the baby, and it doesn't say exactly why, but she loved Jacob. She preferred Jacob. So you've got mom and dad with their preferences going different directions for different reasons. We've got dysfunction right in the family itself. That's going to set up difficulty amongst siblings. And by the way, throughout Scripture, and particularly throughout the book of Genesis, we see that, that true-to-life aspect of family relationships setting the tone for what's going to happen. The struggles within a family are going to represent struggles that are going to take place on a much larger scale, and that's the case here as well. And so uh, Esau is, is a hunter, and he's out, and we see in verse 29 exactly what happens. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. So you can kind of get the image, right? He, he bursts in. He's sweaty, right? He's probably smelly. You know, he's fresh from the hunt, and though he's a skillful hunter, he came back with nothing today. I don't know what that means, but he comes in, and he's starving, He really wants to eat, and he wants to eat right now. And what do you know? Jacob is standing there cooking stew. And so he bursts in, and and, uh, he's exhausted. He's famished. He's got to eat, and he's got to eat right now. And so we read in verse 30, Esau said to Jacob, 
Let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. And really, the Hebrew here is, is sort of uncouth. It's, it's, it's kind of a stammering, like, hey, stew, get, can I have some of the stew? The stew, I like that red stew. Give me that. Feed it to me, right? Feed me. So he rushes in. He's famished. He sees his brother there cooking, and he looks at this red stew, and he decides he wants that red stew, and he's got to have it because he's famished. He's exhausted. He's dying, right? So he wants that red stew. And so, by the way, you have a note there uh, right in the line of the text, verse 30. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Edom sounds like red. And Edom is going to become the name he's going to be known by later, and his offspring will be known as Edom or Edomites later on. They'll live in the land of Edom, right? So we have two nations. We have a nation here uh, being developed. And here's why the reference to red. You saw a reference earlier when he was born, and he was hairy and red all over. So red is, is, uh, is what he is called, Edom, right? So he bursts in. He sees his brother, and he's got to have it. He's got to have it. And he says, give me some of that red stew, that stuff right there. Jacob says, verse 31, sell me your birthright. Sell me your birthright. Now, Jacob's name has a meaning also. Trickster, heel grabber, right? And we see him living up to his name, right? Esau ran in all red in the face kind of idea, right? And he, he wants that red stew. He's living up to his name. But then you've got Jacob who's plotting. I wonder how many times he had thought about this. I wonder if he had concocted this plan in advance. I don't know. But he takes advantage of this opportunity. The trickster is about to trick his brother. The heel grabber is about to, to trip up Esau. And so when he bursts in and when Esau bursts in and demands what he demands, Jacob strikes. He takes advantage right off the bat. And he coaxes Esau to sell his birthright. You know, in any culture, if your, if your brother comes in exhausted and hungry and sweaty, you give him some food. It's right there. You know, it's not a big deal. But personally, in this culture of hospitality, you would want to do that. But Jacob would have none of it. Jacob instead wants to make a deal. He wants, he wants his brother to sell his birthright. And the biblical mindset, the, the birthright was a, a particularly important um, commodity, as it were. The birthright is the right that the firstborn has to essentially a double portion of all the inheritance, right? So however many children you have, the firstborn is the one who's going to get a double portion. Everybody else will get an inheritance, that's fine, uh, but he's going to get a double portion. And so uh, it's a valuable thing to have that birthright. To be the firstborn means not only that you're going to inherit that money or inherit that property or whatever from your dad when your dad dies, but it means you're going to take over leadership. You're going to be the new head of the house, right? So that's, that's the importance of the firstborn. That's the importance of the birthright that we have right, right there. And it seems like if there are only two children, it seems like the birthright entirely goes to the older so that the older is this sole inheritor. And in this case, that would have all gone to Esau. So here's Esau. He's the oldest of two. Even if he wasn't going to get all of it, he would get the majority of it. It's coming to him. That's the idea of the birthright. But even in, in, if you think about these 
parents. Who is Isaac? And who's grandpa? Abraham. This isn't just a regular inheritance that any oldest son might expect. If you, if you think about what has happened in the life of Abraham and Isaac, they have, they've gone from relative obscurity to getting richer and richer. And not only wealthy and influential and, and, and possessing a lot of property and herds and all that kind of stuff, but they actually rub elbows with kings. These are important people. Grandpa was an important man. Dad is an important man. And that is what he stands to inherit. But even more than that, with Abraham and Isaac, what Esau stood to inherit were promises from God himself, where God had made promises to Abraham, and then he had repeated promises to Isaac, saying that he's going to bless him greatly, give them countless offspring and, and a land of their own. So you've got, you've got the normal inheritance, and you've got the inheritance of the wealthy and the influential. That's going to come down to Esau. And then you've got the promises made from God to grandpa and to dad, and all that's going to come down to the one who inherits that. You talk about a birthright. And that is what Esau is being asked to trade. That's what is at stake. I mean, we, we can hardly comprehend, even if it was just one of those aspects, but, it, but, but for it to be all of that material as well as spiritual blessing that is at stake, that is what Jacob is asking for. And so you see Esau's response there. His brother had said, sell me your birthright now, and Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? I'm about to die. Can you imagine that all of that wealth, all of that quantity of blessing from God, all of those promises at stake, that that's his inheritance, but he's so wrapped up in the moment, he's so hungry that, that in his mind, he's about to die. And so who cares about the future? I won't have a future if I don't have some of that red stuff. And so Jacob sees that his brother is weakening. Jacob sees that his brother is, is in some ways a slave to his belly. That, that he's, uh, Esau is pondering there and thinking, well, I've got this birthright that's magnificent, but I'm hungry and I'm hungry right now. And Jacob pushes him. Swear to me now. Let's close the deal. Sign on the, on the dotted line. We have, we've got to make this deal now. And so Jacob is pushing in. Jacob is, is really uh, driving this point home. He's not going to give Esau any ground. Esau is weak in this moment. He's, he's weak morally in what he's valuing. And so Jacob pushes him, sell it now. Esau says, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Jacob says, swear now. And so he swore to him. He swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Try and put yourself in Esau's mind. He's, in his estimation, 
what he's feeling right now in the midst of this. He just came back from the hunt. He burst in. There's food. He's got to have it. In his estimation, his need is so great that it makes sense somehow in his mind to sell his birthright, to sell something of such value. Can you imagine? In his mind, he's about to die, so he won't have a future. Now, I'm, I'm thinking from where I sit reading this that if he can form, formulate the words, I'm about to die, of what use is a birthright to me, he's not that close to death. He could probably wait till dinner time, right? But no, in his mind, he's pushing that line. In his mind, it's of more value, of greater value to have a meal now than to have an inheritance, however great an inheritance, in the future. And so, he swore, and he sold his birthright. The single most valuable thing that he had or could imagine, and he gave it away. Sold it, traded it to his brother, and what price did he get? What price did he get? He had wanted some of that red stuff, some of that stew. Look at verse 34. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. Bread and lentil stew. It wasn't even a good meal. It wasn't the fatted calf. It wasn't a feast. It was bread and lentil stew. And that's what he sold it for. That's the price that he demanded, that he bargained away his entire future for that lousy meal. And what, what, was, what went on in Esau's mind after he did that? What are his actions? What is, how does the author describe this man who would make such a deal? We're going to see that he's, he's going to be remorseful later. For, for how he's been tricked and all this. He's going to be remorseful. But what does he do here? The, the way the language plays out here, the way this, uh, this last second half of the sentence here reads is important to us. He ate and drank and rose and went away. Not a care in the world for the fact that he had just traded away the most valuable thing he could ever imagine. He finished dinner. That's how he thought about it. So, what was his, how did he feel about his birthright that he had traded away? What was his disposition towards this most valuable gift, both in, in riches and in influence, but also these spiritual blessings that were at stake because of promises made to his father and to his grandfather? 34 closes with the words, thus Esau despised his birthright. Worthless, useless, pointless. Who cares? I would rather have lentil stew and some bread. Well, that's the story. That's what happens between these two brothers. And what a tragic story it really is. If you think about 
all that has gone on. You think about Esau's actions, and, and, and of course, Jacob is no saint in this. Of course, he's the trickster. He's the one that, that weaseled his way into this deal. So both brothers are uh, not looking too good at this point, but this tragic story is going to be re- referred to and played out in Scripture again and again and again. We're going to see references to this. We're going to see the consequences of this. And so let's look at the implications of this simple story. There's not a lot to, to dig out of. It's not a complex story. It's not something that you have to know a lot of um, uh, ancient culture or anything beyond really what we've talked about today. But what are the implications for us? How does the New Testament refer to this event? The New Testament reflections upon this event, there are basically two. The first one is what we find in Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 12. We would be negligent if we didn't look at the New Testament references to this passage and, and what conclusions are drawn from it. So we want to look briefly at Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 12. So Paul is going through here and he's arguing about God's election, God's right to choose, and, uh, and talks about that, that Isaac is going to be the child of promise, not Ishmael in verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, so that's this very story, this account, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. That in this passage right here, the one that we're looking at in Genesis chapter 25, we have the sovereign hand of God at work. And there's a lot to look at in this passage, and, and we're not going to drill down into the Romans 9 passage, but we see there that God is the one who makes the choice. We see that God makes the choice when the babies were yet in the womb and hadn't done good or bad. So it's not like He said, well, you're the good son, so you get the blessing, and you're the bad son, so you don't get the blessing. No, that hadn't, none of that had happened. It was in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls within God's own mind, within God's own purposes, He made that determination that the older will serve the younger. So the question that we have, the question that comes up all the time is how can it be that sovereign God makes sovereign choices? What does that say about the choices of mankind? Is God running roughshod over man's will? Is God overriding what man decides he wants to do? That's really the question that I want to look at that is, that is answered from this passage. We see it played out. If we look down at Romans chapter 9 and verse 15, we have the very simple statement that we could chew on the rest of our lives. God will have mercy on whom He will have mercy and compassion on whom He will have compassion. He has that right. He has the ability to make decisions on that level. So the question is, what does that mean for us? How can it be that God can elect who will be His while at the same time not running roughshod over the will of man? 
How can that be? That's the question that is, is addressed here in our Genesis chapter 25 passage. Go back to Genesis 25. The words, the prophecy that was given in verse 23 of Genesis 25 tells us that the firstborn will not get the birthright. The older will serve the younger. That means the younger gets the birthright. That's contrary to nature. That's contrary to custom. That's contrary to culture. And one would think, before we get to our story today, one would think that any firstborn who had that birthright, knowing what his his inheritance is going to be, no firstborn in his right mind would ever give that up. So how can it be that this prophecy is true? How is it going to come about? Is God going to steal the birthright from the older and give it to the younger? Is God going to override the will of of, uh, the father and mother to give the birthright to the oldest or override the will of the firstborn to take it away or something like that? That's the question. And we don't know the question when we're looking at verse 23. We just, we don't know the answers. We have those questions and they remain themselves. I often get asked this question. Someone can be reading through their Bible and they run across the idea that that there's such a thing as as elect, or they see that God has His sovereign purposes, or maybe they hear it in a sermon or they heard it somewhere else, and they, they ask the question, doesn't God's sovereignty and election mean that He takes away a person's ability or right to choose? That's the natural question. And that's probably the question that's in your mind as well. But here in our passage in Genesis chapter 25, what do we see happening? Do we see God coming in with a strong hand and taking the birthright away and saying, Esau, I know you wanted that birthright. You were banking everything on it. Sorry, pal. It's going to your younger brother. Is that what we see play out? Do we see God in any way overriding or overruling or being a strong man in regard to this birthright. What do we see? We see Esau himself, right in the midst of his own circumstances, making the decision, hey, I'm happy to give up my birthright because I want some dinner. God doesn't have to come in. Him being sovereign and making his, his sovereign determinations doesn't mean that he has to come in and, and change your decision, override your decision, run roughshod over what you wanted to do. No, we see that God's determination that is revealed to us in verse 23 of what's going to happen. The older will serve the younger. Well, how can that be, God? Are you just going to take that birth right away? The event comes about. The firstborn comes in. And yes, Jacob was a trickster. No, no whitewashing that at all. Esau fell for it. And Esau willingly made the deal to give up his birthright for some bread and lentil stew. And the end of that, the result of that, was that the younger is going to be served by the older. And so, this passage doesn't drill down into 
God's sovereignty and, and electing purposes, it, it certainly hints at it, and it certainly sets the stage for all that to go on. But, but, but what I want us to see here is God's sovereign purposes of election play out in the choices of men. God doesn't have to override man's choices. Man makes his choices. And the, the thing that man chose for himself, the, the decision that Esau made of his own will was exactly the thing that God had purposed. And so God never has to override man's choices. They, they work together. God's sovereignty is, 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 is such a, a magnificent and, and, and mysterious thing that the, the very choices of man play out the very decisions of God. Man chooses what he chooses for his purposes. God chooses what's going to happen for his purposes. And they work together. And that's exactly what we see playing out in this passage. Man freely chooses for his own purposes exactly what God has sovereignly decreed for his own purposes. That's the first implication. And that helps us in thinking through that question about God's sovereignty and the choices of man. But the New Testament talks about this passage in a different way as well. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. This same passage is brought up in a different context, a very different context, talking about a very different topic. And we cannot miss this one. The, the, the first implication is sort of uh, answering a quandary that people have, a, a, a difficulty, a question that arises in people's mind. This one strikes right to home. Even if you don't uh, don't think much about theology or the questions that, that, that we raised about God's sovereignty and man's choice, if that has never entered your mind or you deliberately try not to think about it or any of that because maybe it seems like it's just theology or it's just out there, it's just a question, this question that's addressed in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 16, every single one of you faces daily. Hebrews chapter 12 Verse 16. I'll start in verse 15, but the real, uh, when we get to Esau, is in verse 16. The author here says in verse 15, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it uh, many become defiled. He's, he's giving some, kind of uh, some concluding um, instructions here, but he's saying in verse 16, See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. I think, how do I face that every day? <laughs> how, how is uh, Brennan saying that that's, uh, that's something that I run across every day? Well, here's how. Esau, according to the author to the, uh, to the Hebrews, Esau is like the poster child for unholiness. You see played out in his life exactly what unholy decision-making looks like what low character looks like, what ungodly character looks like. And you'll see that it's, it's paralleled there with sexual immorality. There's a very, very close connection between sexual immorality and the unholiness that Esau uh, displays for us in Genesis chapter 25. Sexual immorality is like the same. They are closely bound to one another. And so his actions are paralleled to sexual immorality. He, in other words, he trades what is of immeasurable value. Could you calculate the value of that birthright? 
you could, connect, uh, you could calculate the, the, the financial impact. You could calculate perhaps the, the influence that he would have, but you cannot quantify the blessing of God that he gave up. He trades what is of immeasurable value, but, but it's in the future, right? Yes, it's, it's, it's his, but he doesn't see any benefit of it now. It's in the future. He trades that for something that is cheap and temporary and of questionable value. He trades that thing which is of the greatest value for a momentary pleasure. That's what Esau does. And what I want us to see this morning is that this is a blueprint for the path that we so often follow into sin. You and I are Esau. We sense a need. We have a desire. Maybe it's a legitimate need. Maybe it's a legitimate desire. It doesn't have to be something overtly sinful in and of itself. But we sense that need. We sense that desire. And it begins to take center stage. And it grows in our minds. It inflates. And what, what used to be one desire among many desires comes to the center and begins to grow in such a way that that's really all we can see and that's really all we can think about. And it, it continues to grow. It continues to do that, taking center stage until it, it takes on sinful proportions. Almost regardless of what the desire itself is, it, it becomes so overwhelming that it's, it's like an idol. It, becomes, it develops a, a sinful, unreasonable pull upon us. It's the center of gravity all of a sudden. It continues to grow. It becomes more and more of a priority. It becomes a need. It becomes an urgent need. And all the while, the things that are actually more important, the things that ought to be of higher priority become less and less important. Folks, this is how temptation works. When we talk about Esau, you should see yourself there, not over lentil stew, but over whatever that desire is. And it's paralleled in Hebrews with sexual immorality. You can see a very close relationship between these two. And, and, and whatever that need is, whatever that desire is, has taken on such a magnitude that the things that are really important have diminished. They've become less and less. Our integrity becomes unimportant. In light of having this thing, I can sell my integrity. I mean, I'm not really doing anything with it anyway. Obedience, the concept of it would be something that would cramp our style right now. I don't have time to think about obedience. I've got this thing, this, this need, this, this desire that has become a need. I've got to meet that thing, and I'm willing to, to give away obedience. Who cares? Acting in a way that we know is pleasing to God our Father goes right out the window. Couldn't even be bothered to think about that because I've got this thing that I'm pursuing. I've got to have it. Living a way that, that is consistent with one who's been freed from the tyranny and from the power of sin whose penalty for sin has been paid for by another, who has peace with God by free grace at the cost of the Savior's life, living that way just stops mattering. Because after all, I'm famished. I'm about to die. Who cares about that other stuff? I have to have this need met, don't I? Before long, it feels like 
no big deal to trade these old and important priorities for what has become more important in the moment. And folks, we make Esau's trade. And we sell our birthright for lentil stew and crummy bread. I don't think we could think too much about this. There is instruction in this account about Esau and about Jacob. So let's make a couple of points of application and be finished. First of all, don't sell your birthright like Esau did. I'm always amazed when I, when I sit here, uh, when I stand here preaching, and we're in church, and we've got our Bibles open, we just sang, right? We're, we're together as, as a family, as the body of Christ, and we're a positive influence on each other. We're encouraging one another in Christ. That right now, our value system, our priorities are, are approaching where they ought to be, right? We're not as concerned about other things that right, right now we're thinking clearly. Yeah, I know what's valuable. I know what's true. I know it's Christ. I know it's knowing Him. I know it's having peace with God. I know it's loving God and neighbor. I, I know what's important. I know what the priorities are. I think clearly about this. But then we go away. Then we go home. And we go to work. And all of a sudden, our priorities begin to shift, and that little thing that we desire begins to take center stage and begins to inflate, begins to be all we can see, all we desire. It becomes a need. It becomes a need we've got to have met. Folks, we need to begin to look at temptation this way, through this lens. We need to see what it is we are trading. We look at Esau and we think, how could he possibly... He wasn't that hungry. I don't care how hungry he was. He could form a sentence. He's not going to drop dead. He didn't need to sell his birthright for lentil stew. I mean, is he crazy? But then the time comes when we're in that situation. We're the ones jonesing for the lentil stew. We're the ones with the thing that has grown all out of proportion with everything else. And what wouldn't we be willing to trade to have that urgent need met. Don't sell your birthright like Esau, where you've given in to sin's lie that your desire is actually a need that must be met, even if it means betraying God. Where that has happened, and it has happened to you and to me, more than we care to admit, Where that has happened, folks, we need to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross. He literally was going to die, and He endured it because of the joy set before Him, because of what it would mean for you and for me and for glory for Himself. Glory to the Father that God would redeem sinners. He kept His eyes fixed on that joy and He was able and willing to endure the cross where He actually did die. 
But you and I have sold our birthright more times than we can count. We've, we've been Esau in this story. We've agreed to obey our appetite for sin rather than obey our Father who created us. Jesus faced those same temptations. Jesus was confronted with greater temptations than we can even imagine. Was He was presented with, with rulership over the world and things like that. But all the while, His eyes are fixed on the joy that was before Him. His focus was on the great task of redeeming sinners. And He wasn't going to be put off of that task for anything. That was the task of redemption that the Father had given Him to do. And He wouldn't be tricked. He kept His eyes where they ought to be. He kept looking to his Father. He kept looking to God himself. He wouldn't be tricked into anything less than obeying God's law perfectly on our behalf and dying unjustly, but in our place to pay the penalty for our sins. And the birthright of eternity is his. And he has it. And he won it. He didn't give it up. He didn't sell it for anything. He didn't sell it for all the gold in the world. For all the influence in the world, he won that birthright. He retained that birthright. And it is his to share. Because, folks, you and I are on the outside of that. You and I are the ones who have sold our birthright again and again. We're the ones who, who have given in to sin and temptation in a, in, a, in a hundred ways. But he has that birthright. And we who are guilty, we who have given up that birthright, we can have access to his by faith in him. By turning away from ourselves and turning away from our own failure, by, by turning away from certainly that thing that we're pursuing, by looking to Him and what He's done. He who has secured the birthright of eternity, peace with God, shares freely with all who will trust in Him. That's you and that's me. And thus, we who have been the ones who have sold our birthright can receive the benefit of the one who has not. And the birthright is ours and the blessings of God are ours. The birthright of all God's promises and eternal peace with Him become yours forever by looking to Jesus. That, that's the blessing because I, I am Esau in this story and you are Esau in this story, but it is not the end of the story. Jesus is. And He will let you into His birthright by faith in Him. That's the first application. Don't sell your birthright. Secondly, take heart that God keeps His promises. He accomplishes His purposes and no one will stand in His way. We saw the promise in verse 23 of what was going to happen, what was going to play out between these two brothers. And at the time, when you read it, you think, how can that even possibly be? Surely that, uh, someone's going to get in the way of that. Surely there's no way that older brother's going to give up that birthright. No way, not a chance. And we read it play out and we think, oh, well, there it is. Exactly what God said was going to happen. His, his very purposes being accomplished. God's will cannot be thwarted. God's promises cannot be broken. Nothing will get in the way. His counsel shall stand and He will accomplish all His purposes. That should give us comfort, folks, because so often we get in the way of the fulfillment of His promises. At least we give it the old college try. But He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He said He will do it. 
Can he be thwarted? No. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation. He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Did He promise it? Okay. You can trust it. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 He will sanctify you completely, Christian. Do you believe that? Yeah, in your head, because we're in church and we know the Sunday school answer, you're nodding. In your heart, you're shaking your head. I don't think so. God promised it. God whose will cannot be thwarted. God who accomplishes His purposes will sanctify you completely, period, because He is that sovereign. And He will do that not just for you. He does that for the entirety of the body of Christ, all Christians. Jesus said, in fact, He will build His church. And if Jesus said it, He will do it because He has that power. And finally, His grace is sufficient for you. And so though you may find yourself being the one in our story today who sold His birthright, though you may be in the middle of a situation even now, where you're, you're just regretting how you have made that deal. You have, you have sold what is of inestimable value, or at least you have despised it, even if just for the moment, so that you could have this very important need, which later on you realized actually wasn't that important. You could have that need met. That's you. You've done that. Christian, His grace is sufficient for you. And God who promised is faithful, and He will bring it to completion. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage, we, we think about the tragic story of these two brothers, and, and neither one of them looks very good in this story. Uh, you have a trickster and you have a fool. And we see that this is your hand at work. We could play out and look at what this means for the nation of Israel, that what this means for Christ, what this means for the church. We could look at all of that stuff, but I see a picture of us in this story. That we so often are Esau. And if we were left to ourselves, we would gamble everything away. We would sell it. We would give it. We would despise it to nothing for the sake of what is ultimately Worthless. Sin. And frankly, we've done that again and again. But I thank you for Jesus, our Savior, who himself kept his eyes fixed where they ought to be. For the joy set before him, he was even willing to suffer and endure the cross. That he is the one who won that birthright. And He gives it to me, not because I deserve it, not because I am faithful 70% of the time or 51% of the time or 9% of the time, but because Jesus Christ, my Savior, is always faithful. And He says, for all who will call, call upon Him, He will give them that birthright. And Father, my prayer this morning is that 
each one here would look to Christ away from themselves, trust in Him, and find eternal life in Him because He has earned it and He gives it freely. I pray that you would save sinners this morning. And we who continue to struggle with sin, which is everyone whose heart is still beating, may we look to Christ our Savior too. May we think about the things that that tempt us in those moments where that, that desire tends to grow out of proportion and we, we, we begin to lose sight of what is really valuable. Jesus, our Savior, peace with God. And may we remember this story of Esau and may we remember the story of Jesus, our Savior, who for the joy set before Him gave Himself up for us at immense personal cost to himself. Help us as we struggle in weakness and show us Christ and our need for him. And we pray in his name, amen. There's going to be a family down here to pray with you. If you would uh, come and pray with them, I'm going to be down front. If you have questions, if you have uh, concerns or whatnot, I would encourage you again about Evening Church, which is starting in two weeks at, uh, on the 10th of September. At 6 p.m., we look forward to joining you there. Our Sunday school class is fabulous. We still have a couple of chairs left. Join us for that as we look through the confession. God is gracious, and He is wonderful, isn't He? Praise God. God bless you all, and you're dismissed.